Welcome to Inside Parliament. It's a weekly catch-up of the stories that we've been covering this week. I'm Jessica Much and this is Katie Bradford. We're coming to you from the legendary Beehive studio for TVNZ. And we're going to chat about some quite fun, interesting stories this week. It has been a bit... uh, It's felt slow because there's been big other stories with Commonwealth Games and weather going on, but actually there's been a bit going on politically, really. Yeah, um, it started really our week on Sunday when the Greens announced their co-leader, their new co-leader. Have a look at this. They were both in a race to the top of the Green Party, but there could only be one co-leader. Marama Davidson. Now she'll join James Shaw to lead the party. It is the greatest honour of my life. Marama Davidson won more than three quarters of the vote. Julianne Genter showing the emotional toll of the race. Ms Genter is more experienced. She's been in Parliament longer and is a minister. Not being a minister, does that make it hard for you though as co-leader? It's what I have campaigned on is what will be an advantage. Remain connected to the grassroots campaigns and communities that perhaps I wouldn't otherwise as a minister in this first term. The job was left vacant after Materia Ture resigned before the election after revealing she'd committed benefit fraud. Both co-leaders played up the fact that they represent different parts of the Green Party. James Shaw comes from a business background and likes issues like climate change. The new co-leader has made a name for herself on social issues like housing, a better fit for the gap left vacant by Materia Ture. We represent the broad church of our Green voters. It was up to those Green Party members to choose the leader. I was thinking maybe the other candidate but no, she spoke really well and I'm delighted. We've been um, cheering on Marama for a while now. Because Julianne is doing such a wonderful job anyway, and she's going to have more on her plate later, I, I just felt Marama. Marama Davidson lives in South Auckland with her husband and six children who came to support her. Unbelievable. As well as her famous dad. When I'm recognised, it's, ah, oh, you're Marama Davidson's father. <laughs> The Green Party now hopes Marama Davidson will be able to help it secure the votes it lost last election. So I have to say, it was really interesting watching that play out on Sunday. Um, Julianne Genta, who was the other contender who missed out there, to her credit, fronted up and came along. And it's a big deal because it's, that's hard. She it's was kind dignified. of a cruel way the Greens have always done that. They yeah. always make, you know, they, they go to a back room and they wait and they have to, you know, they wait for the results to be counted and it can take a while because it seemed to take from afar on Sunday. Yeah. Watching it um, obviously wasn't there, but it felt like it took quite a while for those votes to be counted and for it to come in. Yeah. And, and they have to stand there both not knowing what's going on and then come out and put out a brave, on a brave face. And that's hard for anyone. Yeah. And it was a big call for them because if you take the personality aside, you have Julianne Genta, who is a minister. Her profile is arguably higher. Yep. Um, she has more experience. Um, Marama Davidson um, perhaps fulfills more of the gaps left by um, Materia Ture, her interest in, in housing and social issues as well. But it also perhaps signals more of a swing to the left. Um, when we asked Marama Davidson about that, she said, yep, I'm very comfortable with the term activist. Um, you can you can call me that. I'm comfortable with being um, more left on lots of issues. So it's interesting to see the internal politics of the Greens play out quite publicly because with some of the other parties, we don't see that. And I think um, it's very it's well known that there's been, a, there's been a big divide. There is a big divide within the Greens about where the direction of the party is heading. If Julianne had got that, uh, it would have said to the left of the Greens, 
you need to think about your options. There would have been talk of a splinter party. There would have been all kinds of ramifications by going by going down that track. The idea of uh, James Shaw and Julianne Genta together versus James Shaw and Marama Davidson together is a very different looking Green Party, uh, and and that was the problem. That that was what the party had to contend with. Really, whether the Greens can still pick up, you know, their biggest problem now really is the popularity of Jacinda Ardern, and that's where they will st- continue to struggle. They need to position themselves. They're in government now. Uh, they have to work out how they continue to stand away, stand differently, and look different from the government, uh, from Labour, if they're going to have a future, given how close they came to losing in the last election too. Yeah, and she is just always forever going to cannibalise them while yes, she's while in she's in po- while she's popular anyway. Yeah. Um, well, from the Greens to perhaps a um, green substance of a different matter, mould. Did you like that? No, <laughs> no I'm not sure if it works. No, 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 no I think sure. we got there with good. These segues can be awkward, so that one was, you know. I had about 30 seconds to think about it. Um, The mould at Middlemore Hospital has flared up again this week. Yeah, and Jonathan Coleman um, has come out swinging. Uh, He he left on Wednesday night, had his valedictory speech. He was very, he wanted to make sure that his legacy as health minister was remembered. Uh, Here's what he had to say in his last couple of days about what he did or didn't know about Middlemore Hospital. The former health minister leaving politics with controversy in his wake. In the last few weeks, the terrible state of Middlemore Hospital's buildings has been revealed. Mould, asbestos, raw sewage among the litany of complaints. If someone had said there were four buildings with leaky building issues at Middlemore, that would have gone straight to the top of the priority list. I was talking to a clinician at Middlemore over the weekend. They didn't know. If Jonathan Coleman didn't know about this, he should have. Jonathan Coleman says no one at County's Manukau DHB raised the issue with him. But given ministers ask for no surprises from their departments, why wasn't he or the current health minister warned? An issue that affects patient care, of course you would expect it to be raised. There's a clear process for raising capital bids up to the Capital Investment Committee. Um, It just is not credible to say that they were in some way scared of me. Jonathan Coleman says it's up to the county's Manukau DHB to explain why it didn't tell him about the problems, if it knew at all, when he was minister. The DHB, though, refused to answer our questions about this issue today. Dr Coleman says his government spent $3 billion on capital projects for hospitals. But the new health minister estimates taxpayers could be facing a bill of $14 billion over the next 10 years. That's uh, an estimate at this stage because we don't even have a list of all the assets in the health sector. To me it sounds like a made up figure. David Clark says DHBs must be honest about what's needed, but they may have to wait a while. The Prime Minister warning late today that there won't be much cash to splash in next month's budget because of the pressure on core services. We thought it would be bad, we didn't know it would be this bad. And the public is seeing just a snapshot of it now. So, as Jonathan Coleman leaves politics... If you're not thick-skinned, you shouldn't be in politics. This is just another day at the office. The health system finds itself needing some healing of its own. So, the problem we have here is, is it seems to be that the health, previous health minister, the current health minister, were warned there were problems going on with buildings around the country. They weren't necessarily given specifics. We don't know what Jonathan Coleman did or didn't know. And we have to take him at his word for that until we see, unless we see documentation that says otherwise, this is what. Yeah. 
if he didn't know, which we assume he didn't because th- that's what he is telling us, he should have known. The DHB should they have should told, have told him. him. Yeah. And, and perhaps he should have asked different questions as well. The fact that David Clark didn't know about it until quite recently as well perhaps shows there is um, some quite significant flaws in the way that this is being communicated. And I think David Clark has gone out and done this, but what he does need to do is go out and say that the DHBs don't keep these things from me. And it seemed to be some of the allegation is that the DHBs didn't want to tell Jonathan Coleman for whatever reason. They wanted to look like they're in surplus. The health budgets have been, as we all know, um, very tight. And so um, uh, they, for whatever reason, didn't put money into fixing these buildings. And now the government now has to sort it out. And David Clark needs to know how much that's going to cost, how he's going to fix it, what the priorities are. He has got a massive job ahead of him. And what's such a nightmare over this is it's not just you have to obviously rebuild and strip it down, but as soon as you open up those walls, that it, it gets airborne and then you have to move out all of the patients from there as well. And so where do they go when they're already the hospital's overcrowded? situation. Yeah. So you can see how the DHBs thought, oh. We're just not going to deal with this. This is and and I'm sure they did, and I'm sure they talked about it. But you can see how it's such a nightmare of a situation that you're just going to have to pump money into. Yes, and that I mean that's in the wider context this week. The government has come out signalling about the fact that they say they don't have enough money to live up to their promises. Essentially, Um, whether that's it's, it's a very political move a month out from the budget to come mm. out and say, look, just so you know, you're not going to get anything in the budget. Yeah. Um, and, and making it clear that they think they have bigger, uh, there's bigger bills coming up in health and education than perhaps they yeah. thought. But it's also very politically national saying, well, actually, you just can't, you, you just can't afford all the promises you made. Well, it was interesting. I did a live on this on Monday night and was surprised at how um, clear and adamant um, they were in their messaging a month out from the election, clearly seizing on this Middlemore example in yes. a political sense, saying, look, guys, this is an example of what the national government has left for us. We're going to have to put more money into it. Don't get excited. Don't get too excited about the budget was their message. Yeah. And, I, I mean, we see it all the time. You are managing expectations from the public. But a month out, it just seemed that perhaps they saw this as an opportunity and thought this is a great way of illustrating this to the public. Well, they've finalised the budget bids now, so they know what's in the budget. Mm. And so we, we can expect to see over the next few weeks the sort of pre-budget announcements start coming out. They'll They'll drip those out bit by bit but I think um, most people can expect that a lot of things they were hoping for won't come because as we've known all the money was spent on the families packages and the tertiary education policy and you do have to wonder whether they're going to start regretting spending all that money on that tertiary education Mm. policy and and being left now for another year of trying to play catch up a bit. Well National attacked that policy, it also put out an attack ad this week. That was a cleaner segue. That was good, I think. Um, On the fuel tax. And um, it raised a few eyebrows. Um, It had, it was pretty, um, a pretty short, snappy um, ad that they put out just saying, you know, you're going to get hit in the back pocket twice. A little bit of humour mixed in there for anyone um, who reads that into it. Um, There were a few smirks from Simon Bridges and Nathan Guy and Jamie Lee Ross on that. (laughs) Um, But also we thought we'd take a look then, we'd use this week's feature to then go back and look at some of the ads from the past. First one here is from 1975. Shortly, Labour will be taking millions out of our pay packets each week and spending it. In just seven years, they'll have enough money to buy every share in every public company in New Zealand. Let's talk about the health system. 
Sick of empty promises from the other parties? Has National fixed health? Do you think National ever will? Labour? Did they fix it last time? I wonder what National will give us for Christmas. You reckon we can trust National not to let nuclear ships back in again? If National get elected, ordinary Kiwis may be shocked by their Christmas presents. Thank you very much for your high taxation. Thank you very much, thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much for your high taxation. Thank you very much. We have a new total. Time we had a new government. Thank you very much. So I think um, some of those ads brought back a few memories for some of us, especially that um, last dancing one. It was kind of um, creepy when I sang it again, I remember. They yeah. date really badly, <laughs> yeah. don't yeah. they, some of those attack political ads. Um, another big issue that came up um, this week, though, and was announced late in the day, was this announcement to launch an inquiry into Nikki Hager's hit-and-run book. It was basically, if you boil it all down, it was the Defence Force saying one thing, um, Nikki Hager and John Stevenson and Hit and Run saying another. What we learned about yesterday was this half an hour of footage owned by the US military showing armed individuals in the village villages. Interestingly, what actually um, was talked about there, uh, the Attorney General came and said, look, um, I saw the footage and it shows that there were those armed individuals in the villages, that actually backs up the Defence Force's take on all of this. But he said that it wasn't conclusive and he still wanted to look to have into a look it. At it. And we have an inquiry. And, the you know, the previous government had looked at this footage, uh, the Defence Force has looked at this footage, this footage has been available for everyone to see. What's uh, the, What happened is, of course, Labour, when in opposition, wanted this inquiry to happen. They hadn't seen that footage. They needed to see it. Uh, I think they were going to go ahead with this inquiry. I think what's interesting is, in fact, it's taken them this long to come to making this decision and why it's possibly taken them this long. Yeah. Does, does it mean that David Parker, perhaps, once he saw that footage, wavered a bit on I what he... I actually think it wouldn't have been a really hard thing for the government to get out of if they'd changed their mind on it. Because they could just say they've seen the footage. When yeah. are they going to see that footage? No, and I feel so, like if... He'd wanted to at 4.15 yesterday afternoon when they made the announcement. He could have come out and said, look, I've now had access to the footage, a luxury. We don't have an opposition. I've seen that and I've made a decision not um, to investigate. His argument is that we need to restore our faith in the Defence Force um, and that it's still bubbling around um, this issue. So I guess he feels as though um, he's looking at different information. Yeah, and I think I think you'd hope that what will happen from this inquiry that could take up to a year yeah. is that actually there might be some further answers about it because it is murky. The ombudsman came out, I think, last week and said there was, you know, that, that some of the information that had been provided to the public and to the media wasn't accurate. Yeah. So there has continued to be questions around this and I think um, everyone deserves some more solid answers about what happened And there are, yeah, exactly. Um, Just on the difference between um, the decision from National Party and the decision from Labour, um, here's what David Parker had to say at the press conference on that. Well, some of the uh, footage that I've seen and described was also available to them. I suppose uh, one of the differences is, is that we're now just about a year on and the controversy has not died away. 
And another big decision this week, of course, it came uh, on Thursday, was the decision to end or block offers to end oil exploration. Not immediately, of course, because there are all those permits that are still out there now, but mm. it is a big move. It was, again, it's something that was signalled by Labour. The Greens will have been pushing for this. The Greens will see this as a win. Uh, Shane Jones, New Zealand First, I think, and Shane Jones may not be as happy, but they do have to stand there and support yeah. it. So. Um, Andrea is doing the story for us on that, um, but I went along to the press conference just to have a listen and um, the body language, it didn't require an expert to um, see that there was a slight difference between the way that James Shaw was standing there. He looked like he was the cat that got the cream. He was smiling the whole time through. Shane Jones looked as though he would rather be anywhere else. I mean, I think and it was yeah, interesting last week when the um, t- uh, Shane Jones and others went to Taranaki and launched the Regional Economic Development Plan and the focus there really was on moving away from oil and gas. They put $20 million in there, which, nice little projects, but, you know, a lot more than that will be needed if they are going to, you're going to move away from a region reliant on this to new ways of an economy. And the government does have time to work on that, but this will uh, provide some shakes, I think, for people. Mm. Big picture, it's an example of how a coalition has to work. Um, You don't like it, but big picture, this is what you signed up for. um, And sometimes you have to swallow the dead rats and that's part of being a deal that's going to be a really hard sell for minister jones when he goes back into those mr mr in the regions himself. What did he call himself? Mr. Regions? I think he called himself Mr. Regions, Mr. Regions in the house yesterday. Yeah. Should be one of those little books <laughs> yeah. that you get. And so, and he's really determined to do well in that portfolio. So it will be um, it will be interesting to see how they handle it. I understand Jacinda Ardern and Megan Woods are going to go to Taranaki in a few weeks when she's back from Chogham to, uh, to meet with people there. You'd expect a fiery yeah. reception. So. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we've made it sound like quite a um, busy week, really, despite yeah, having all the like com game stuff yeah. and the weather stuff. Yep. So there you go. We've had a little chat. Thank you very much for being with us for Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up of what we've been covering in the One News team here at Parliament. It's available, our podcast, every Thursday evening on the One News Facebook page. And check us out on your favourite podcasting app. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah.